Hello listeners and welcome back to Quote Unquote with KK. Over the last three seasons, we have been talking about our economy, where the world is moving and issues like health and happiness. Today, we are going to be talking about the happiness economy and where does India stand. And to talk about it, we have invited a very, very special guest who has been people's chief economic advisor of India. And he has done some seminal work in driving this country and taking this country forward during our COVID crisis. And he comes from a very humble beginnings to lead this country forward at a time of crisis. He is none other than Dr. K.B. Subramaniam and I would be calling him as Subu, which he has consented me to call him today on the podcast. Let me quickly run through his CV, which is too short and too small to say what his achievements at this age as one of the youngest chief economic advisor of India. So Dr. K.B. Subramaniam is a professor at the ISB School of Business at the youngest Indian School of of Business and the youngest chief economic advisor to the government of India from 2018 to 2021. And he has driven several agenda during the time of COVID crisis to lead India into a strong macroeconomic fundamentals. Professor Subramaniam has displayed the courage of conviction not only to predict V-shaped recovery of India when everybody was talking about India being doomsday and we'll talk about our prediction also on the stock market V-shaped recovery as well during our course of our conversation. Acknowledging Dr. Subramanian's contribution, the Prime Minister of India noted his academic brilliance and his unique perspective on economy and policy matters and his reformatory zeal. Dr. Subramanian authored path-breaking economic surveys on ethical wealth creation, on strategic blueprint to take India to a $5 trillion economy and the post-COVID recovery of the economy using capital expenditure in infrastructure and healthcare. And we're going to talk about that further on in our podcast show. In India's economic policy towards self-reliant India and the reform commitment, he has advocated several new themes and ideas in his survey, some of which are now under implementation. He is truly a common man CA from his life beginnings and from where he has come. He has been an alum from IIT Kanpur and IIM Calcutta and a PhD from University of of Chicago, where we have had several other economists as well who have been playing a role in our Ministry of Finance and our banking and finance industry as well. Welcome to our podcast show, Dr. Subramanian. It's a pleasure having you on our podcast at a time when the world and our economy is going topsy-turvy. And one of the critical issues on happiness is the household happiness. If the household is happy, then the community is happy. And if the community is happy, then the country is happy. And I would love to delve on this a little bit along with your background as a common man's chief economic advisor. So let me begin by asking you your journey. How did you manage to reach such height and deliver such thing to our country? And it's definitely an inspirational story for our listeners. Thank you very much, Kapil, for inviting me to this podcast. Very humbling you know, to hear all these things being said, honestly. I, I don't think anyone is uh, who's had some success can claim you know all credit to himself. 
yourself. Oftentimes, it is about so many people, starting from your own parents who've contributed, who gave you the education, mentors who mentored, you know, and gave you the right direction at the right time, and mentors who gave you opportunities at the right time as well. So, oftentimes, many of us tend to sort of take credit for our successes and blame others for failure. But I'd be honest to acknowledge that I think a lot of our successes themselves are because of the contributions of several other people including you know in particular in my case my parents i was the first person to ever step into the portals of a universe my dad lost his father when he was only 7 years old and therefore he could only complete school education and that too because of the largest of his elder brother and an elder sister so he never got formal education beyond school but he was a voracious reader and really wanted to be an intellectual himself but what he could not get in his life he made sure that me and my younger brother my younger brother was also a professor at the indian school of business he is also like me iit kanpur and then i am amdabad and then a phd from edec paris so just two siblings my dad you know and my mom gave us the best education and at a time when they themselves had been facing economic difficulties my dad basically started in the clerical grade in the indian railways and had to take care of two widowed sisters and their money their families and at the same time our own family in his clerical salary but he still decided to give us he and my mom decided to give us english education which was very costly at that time we were the first people in our family to be sent to an english medium school and that the 8 rupee fee that had to be paid actually was something that was very very large it was they could have sent us to the government school the hindi medium or you know but they felt at that time basically money will come later but the opportunity to educate the children will not come and so and i in fact seen my father actually borrow from money lenders and when i joined bandhan bank and he was alive at that time i told him that this is what bandhan bank does he was actually was very very emotional and he, this is i'm talking about 2015 he passed away in june 2015 so this is I'm, i think february or march when i actually decided to join the bandhan bank board so he said life has come a full circle and that no other krishnamurti hopefully will have to go and borrow from a money lender or put his hands out for, uh, sort of asking for money from a money lender so that's that, that's been sort of partly my my journey i think i give a lot of credit to my parents for having the themselves had the courage of conviction to basically be different when they put us in when they put me in english medium i was the elder son my my brother is 2 years younger to me when they decided to do that all our relatives actually thought they were crazy while having to borrow having to take care of the two widowed sisters sending them money in a clerical salary actually they said why are you like people used to say jitni chadar hai utni paon pasarni chahiye that if they had gone by those those pieces of wisdom maybe i wouldn't have been able to be even one tenth of what i have been able to contribute so i think first and foremost i think i just owe enormous debt to my parents for them to have had the courage of doing different you know in a positive way i think in some sense i blessed are you to have such parents as well not many people in india have such parents oh yeah of course no i i think let's be i will give there are many middle class parents who actually do this they, i think for me of course my parents are quite special given what you know but i think th- there are many other middle class parents as well parents of middle class families who sacrifice a lot to educate their kids i think especially in our in our parents generation a lot of families right. a lot of parents did that i of course i'm grateful to my parents as i'm sure many others will be for to their parents for having given the, given them the education i'm sure if you look across there are many in the united states other other places who came from humble families as well and it's only because their parents sacrificed to give them education that they actually have such a good life so i wouldn't i mean while i absolutely am inc- 
incredibly grateful to my parents for having done that. There were others, I'm sure, who have done that too. I think that's something which we have to acknowledge. So, I want to take up a corollary question. A country conducts a lot of, a lot many household surveys, census, and all this data gets aggregated on household income, consumption, capital formation to give us a wealth of insight on the household and our household economy. And obviously, COVID pandemic and crisis has taught a lot of lessons to Indian household, particularly the middle bulge India. What are your key messages as a common man's chief economic advisor to better manage their household, their health, happiness and contribute positively to the family, community and nation at large? So, I think this is a very, very, very deep question, Kapil. Yeah, I some will... people can write PhDs as well in the academia. <laughs> so, I'll answer this question maybe as more as a common man, less as an economist. I will give the economist perspective as well. But as a common Indian, especially, if you ask the word happiness, I think we have to recognize that whenever, anywhere in the world, anyone asks the question, what is it that it takes to actually be happy? Or a related question, which is that, what is the purpose of human life? The two are, by the way, inter- intertwined. And we, the, we the, value the, human capital in economics as well. Correct. So, but I'm actually talking about related, but more fundamental aspects than just economic here. That when somebody thinks about how to be happy, how, how to sort of make sure human life value of that is realized, the one and only country that anyone thinks about anywhere in the world is India. And I think there have been legions of people who have come here in search of these answers to these fundamental questions of human existence. So when it comes to happiness, therefore, first thing I will basically say is that we as Indians should actually really value and go and dig into some of the the wealth of knowledge. If there's one country that has done research into how to be happy, how to lead a very, very enriching human life, it is this country. The entire Vedantic scriptures, Upanishads, the Dharma Sutras, so much is there. And that is indeed literature too. It is not just, I think that's the first thing to recognize that it is not only what what is written in English is not literature. What is written in, in, in some of these very, very deep stuff is also very important. So even if we go and sip one drop from this ocean of knowledge that is called Vedanta, right? I think we will basically get a lot of insight to how to be happy. And the bottom line, I know that a couple of things that I would mention is that first thing to recognize that being happy is our response. Is each individual's responsibility. There is no point blaming X, Y, Z or you or we for our happiness. That is the first thing. Most of us actually do, I think, do not understand this that, you know, if I blame the government, if I blame my parents, or if I blame my spouse or whoever it is, basically for me being unhappy, I think basically we've gone on the wrong path at the very outset. So that's the first thing to recognize. Second thing to, to recognize is that while money and consumption and you know, all the economic aspects are to some extent necessary, they're not sufficient for happiness. There's a very important distinction between what is necessary and what is sufficient. Also, the important perspective, I think one as I say this from my personal experience, I think gratitude plays a very, very important role being happy. When so many people lost their lives in COVID, for instance, just being grateful for the fact that we are still, we have a life and that we've been able to get to, I think, and I'm not, by the way, trying to minimize any of the difficulty. I'm just trying to give a perspective that gratitude, the way it 
enhances happiness, I think nothing else does. So I'll give you a, a sort of a story. This is something which I oftentimes mentioned, right? I had the opportunity to learn economics from my first course in economics at the University of Chicago from Professor Gary Becker, the 1992 Nobel Laureate. Most of us would actually be incredibly happy to actually just be a Nobel Laureate. When I, and I'm not saying that he was not happy or anything, but in his lectures, he would basically talk about Milton Friedman as the Nobel Laureate of Nobel Laureates. In other words, he was sort of looking up to, to Milton Friedman and there are others, there are people who basically would look up to Gary Becker, there are people who actually, some people who look up to people like us, we look up to others. I think it is important, therefore, to sort of, while it is good to draw inspiration from others, negative emotions like jealousy, envy, etc., these are fundamentally, you know, the cause of a lot of unhappiness. And this is what we learn in our scriptures in Vedanta. So these are, so that's the, this is not an economist answer because I don't think economists can actually give you the answer to about how to be happy. Let me flip this question or this issue the other way. We had John Clifton, uh, the CEO of Gallup, also come on our podcast in our first season. And we talked about happiness and employee engagement. And those were the other issues at that point in time. Recently, his organization published a report on unhappiness, and which is on an all-time high. Now, from an economics perspective, and if you say that India is so rich, then Rigid with the GDP, we should tag along certain that other metrics as well to say gross national development, personal development or household development or some such metrics to say how rich or poor the people of this of that country are. What's your view? Is it time that we debunk all the GDP percentages, growth, blah, 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 but also tag along certain social metrics like these to come up with a aggregated metrics to say how rich or poor the country is, even uh, wealth-wise as well as emotionally. So, firstly, let me correct Kapil. Actually, when you said rich and I tried to intervene, rich in perspective, rich materially and rich in perspective are not necessarily one and the same. I think that's a right. Now, this question, actually, I have to answer as an economist. I would love let, your perspective. Let there. me first start by giving you an example. Let's say that uh, an individual goes and buys a car. Let's say he goes and buys a Maruti ST. Just as let's take as an example. Sure. Now, that is it's, a, it's, it's consumption, which basically increases GDP. But whether or not that necessarily translates into positive emotion whether or not that basically is necessarily increasing happiness is not clear let me let me explain now suppose this is a person who's never had a car before this is the, it's this person's and this family's first car then obviously that particular consumption would make them very very happy you no know, one perspective but suppose on the other hand let's say this is a family that was incredibly rich but they you know went and lost their money they were actually driving in a Porsche before for whatever reason they actually now have to come and downscale to basically drive drive a Maruti, you know, Maruti esteem, then they'll be extremely unhappy. So it's the same purchase, same consumption that has enhanced GDP, but one family, you know, same thing actually is very happy. Another family is very unhappy. That's one perspective. Second perspective is that, so this is in terms of basically what we economists call time series, what this family's past was, right? But another perspective, yes, but another perspective is cross-sectional. So for instance, if this is a family that let's say lives in, you know, because you're familiar with, with Mumbai, I'll give you, suppose this is a family that lives in Dharavi and they go and buy a Maruti esteem. Among their peers, they're actually seen to be very, very well. And therefore, in a relative sense, obviously, they're actually better off. It makes them happy. Their peers acknowledge. In contrast, let's say this family is a family from living in Kafkare, where basically Mercs and BMWs, let's say, are, are the norm. Then in that perspective, basically, the same, same purchase is not seen very well and family will not 
not be happy right so in other words it, it when you talk about happiness happiness cannot be defined without actually some benchmark and that benchmark is about how you you view it how others let's say view it and therefore how you want to be perceived you know by others these are all aspects that come into emotion and that is why i say as an economist i find a lot of loose talk about defining or measuring gross national happiness etc and defining emotion i think it fundamentally we have to recognize that these are not aspects that you can convert into quantitative measures these are subjective aspects as i just told you the same and this is what vedanta teaches as well when you add gratitude to a particular situation the fact that some but some people let's say are unhappy one could actually say oh you know if you look at basically the, the benchmark being oh i could have been dead covid compared to that i'm actually alive can make you happy the, the perspective of gratitude but you basically look at another perspective and by the way i'm not sort of suggesting anything i'm just giving examples to illustrate points here sure. that if you take oh no no i actually was earning x before and i'm now earning let's say 0.9x and therefore unha- i'm unhappy right so if these are important aspects and that is why as a as an economist i actually find all this talk about measuring emotion measuring happiness is basically uh, is without rigor it is not, it is without deep thinking it is not what, what one can do in other words let me put it differently happiness is a micro thing and when you try to measure at the at the national level you're always talking about macro stuff and right. there is something called what is called aggregation of preference you can't aggregate preferences very easily because they're not linear there are i mean there's there's a lot of mathematics involved there in terms of aggregation of preferences etc so it axiomatically itself i don't think you can actually define these emotive measures at the macro level these are all micro things that which have to so fundamentally i am i don't foresee in the next 3 years ways be able to capture emotions like this and that is where i'm actually inspired by by the vedantic perspective that that is basically about you no know, the micro perspective about what the, what the individual should do to be happy if you draw inspiration from that i don't think economics or any economist will ever be able to actually come up with a measure of emotion happiness etc that is trying to quantify things that are inherently not quantifiable on another note i think the future is very bright for macro behavioral economists do you agree to that mm, again i sort of I'll, i'll extend from from the previous answer itself as i said that behavioral economics i'll come to that in a minute but as i said happiness is a micro construct macro on the other hand you have to aggregate preferences aggregate. of individuals that's correct that's aggregate, what i wanted to say aggregate emotions of individuals etc and behavioral economics is about taking into account basically the emotional responses of individuals etc so i am not quite sure that macro economics can actually capture these emotive aspects that well so yes behavioral policy for instance things like changing default rules i'll give you an example if you look at the default for default policy for organ donation you know in two two countries that are contiguous to each other germany and austria in germany the default is that if you want to donate an organ you have to you have to basically go and enroll in austria the default is if you don't want to denote, donate an organ you have to go and enroll so the default is different and what do you see you see organ donation being far higher in austria than in than in germany why because inherently all of us actually face inertia basically is as the opposite of what kabir's doha which is you know kal kare so aaj kar aaj kare so so ab pal mein parlay hoegi bahuri karega kab the you know in hostel in you know undergrad it was basically aaj kare so kal kal kare to parson abhi itni bhi kiya jaldi hai zindagi padhiya barso which is what is basically Correct. which is what happens you know more with most of us and that is why default rules you know matter a lot so in, ter- in from a macro perspective 
effective, I think behavioral policy can make a difference. Why? Because it, at the micro level, just this example of this default rule, for instance, can motivate individuals basically to be able to take action, some action or not take that action. That is important. But I am not quite sure that behavioral macroeconomics is something that that is very difficult because it is about capturing stuff that is inherently un, non-quantifiable. Well, let's talk about social media behavioral economics as well now. There is a whole fake news factory. Somebody <laughs> who is a Nobel laureate and somebody who's also gone on to be one of our oldest universities founded by our Hindu mythology as well, talking about where India will be and compared us with our neighboring country. And now we know how that neighboring country is and where we are. Can you please tell me to such Nobel laureates who have been writing such thesis and theorizing where and what have a very false negative approach toward behavioral economics and what should they be doing now to course correct about their views? So, first of all, I generally don't like talking about individuals, but overall itself, they're not they're not opining on behavioral economics. They're opine, opining on, on the Indian economy and Indian society. Let's, no, but the let's social media clear. leads to a lot of fear and psychosis at the mass correct. level who follow it. That's why correct. I said it's behavior. No, I agree, but I think we have to be precise here. Actually, is these people like these are opining on the economy or on society and then that is leading to reactions from individuals. That's the behavioral part. But the, those individuals might basically say there's a mischaracterization because we're not talking on, on behavioral economics. We're talking on, on the economy and talking on Indian society. So that's let's make sure that we get that part right. With that aside, I think what I want to mention is that I have always believed that truth has a power that is actually, that is far, far greater than even, even a thousand lies put together, a thousand lies that are repeated a thousand times. That's why it's, this is a national slogan as well, Satyameva Jayate, Correct. said differently as well, a ray of light, just one ray of light is enough to basically win over all encompassing darkness. That is the intrinsic power of truth. And ever since I took office in 2018, I have actually derived a lot of satisfaction in trying to in pursue truth about the Indian economy. I mean, I have nothing to comment on what others may be doing. I will only comment on what is my dharma, what is my, my pursuit. And that is basically about telling the truth. And and here I will write when, when I took over 2018 people were saying that there is something structurally wrong about the economy the truth and which has been proved right now was there was nothing structurally wrong about the economy if anything it was basically the slowdown that happened because of, of the excesses the crony lending that had been done and the financial sector problems that basically were handed over to this government by the previous government so it was a hangover from of basically and I and I use that word hangover with the pun in intended there as well that was given to this government or the financial sector problem. Now, the fact that if you take an IMF or my own projections, if you see even year and a half back, I was saying that this decade, India will grow at six to seven, at least six and a half, seven percent this decade. Now, if there was something structurally wrong with the economy, you can't have seven percent growth. IMF itself is projecting about that kind of growth. I will mention that I actually had said this far earlier than the IMF and others will actually also start join the bandwagon and you will right. see this particular truth coming in. So that it's 
truth was there was nothing structurally wrong about the economy. Similarly, there was something that was basically the, oh, India's GDP growth is overestimated. Again, the truth was there was nothing wrong about the GDP estimation itself. I wrote a full chapter in the economic survey, the title of which was, is India's GDP growth overestimated? No. And it is by far the most technically sophisticated chapter in econometrically, very careful econometrics showing that this claim that India's GDP growth was overestimated was basically complete, was patently false. Similarly, if you look around May 2020, around that time, summer of 2020, when we were having the lockdown, again, there were basically people saying that India, Indian economy is basically going to go to a, go to the dogs. And at that time, I had predicted that there will be a V-shaped recovery. That is indeed what has happened. Again, your third time as well, truth, truth prevailing. Then if you look at people said, oh, India is basically not doing vaccination. India is exporting vaccines, this, that and the other. The truth is now that we basically have done 200 crores plus vaccine. Now, then people said that, oh, India's currency is crashing. And the truth again is that while dollar has appreciated about 9% compared to other currencies, the rupee has depreciated only by about 3.94%. So again, truth is basically is this is what the truth is. Similarly, now people are saying that, oh, Sri Lanka has suffered these economic problems because of the persecution that they did to the minorities, their minorities Tamils two decades back. Again, you look at it basically that this is, it's not even a correlation because it's just one country. Forget about cause causation. And there, from there, the extrapolation is being done. Again, basically what is not the truth saying, oh, India is all sort of, we will we'll go through a crisis because firstly, we have to understand that what was done in Sri Lanka was, was a genocide, no less. So to extrapolate from a genocide itself actually tells you why truth is so powerful. When lies like that are basically pushed, then obviously truth has a very, very easy job winning over such lies. So when you look at it, actually, each one of these five, six examples, you can clearly see that that is the power of truth. It is like just one ray of light is enough to you know win over all encompassing dark. And that is what I have actually found. And I've been very, very happy to have been played my small bit in this pursuit of truth. In fact, that is one of the reasons why we called for this podcast. This social media, fake news, behavioral economics is hurting a lot of sentiments at this current point in time, whether politically uh, motivated or not. And I saw your presentation about the truth. The problem again is that whole German and Australia default. The TikTok of false truth gets propagated much faster into the minds of the people and households versus a seminal note that you have published, which is gone only to the intellectual who have read it and maybe forwarded it in WhatsApp to a few individuals. But the key messaging, the way it has been played in our wider fake news factory tends to mute such truth, even though there are hard numbers and facts. As an economist, you think that there has to be something done to change this whole mindset. Or you know, there are fact checkers who will eventually stop this with the facts and figures, but then the damage is done to the behavior and the behavioral side of, of the household. Yeah, I think this is know, nothing firstly, short uh, than an, an, an anarchy, I would say. No, I agree with you there. See, for various reasons, and I think this is, if you look at it, is a lot of constituents who I think have some interest in India, the way it is moving right now, not succeeding. And that that is something that has always been, if you look at society, and I'll use an example from, from, our, from our mythology. If you, as, as an Indian, I'm sure you would have heard about the Samudra Manthan, right? And in the Samudra Manthan, what came out first was poison. And, and Lord Shiva had to actually drink that poison. Only after that poison was drunk, did the Amrit come, which Mahavishnu can could go and distribute it to the to all the gods, right? So that is the process. In there is always this fight, you know, between the good and the evil that keeps happening. And and in 
the pro in that process poison does come up and the the equivalent of the shivas who have the capability to actually take some of that poison have to actually drink that poison but then after that is when the the amrit comes about to be distributed to everybody so those of us who actually were in policy making roles responsible roles had to actually take the take some of that poison and keep fighting basically and talk about what is the truth and it is in that pursuit that i actually put this presentation i think the facts are very very clear if you look at just to a very simple sort of analysis just take a look at the response to the global financial crisis which happened under a dispensation to which a lot of people who are spreading these narratives are sympathetic to versus the response to the covid crisis and the ukraine war now take any macro statistic whether it is fiscal deficit whether it is inflation current account deficit fdi that came in foreign portfolio invest currency depreciation the amount of capital expenditure the amount of revenue expenditure you know i've already listed out eight macro indicators on each one of these macro indicators india has done far far better in the interest of time i'm not going to go into each one of them but i will give you just an example of a couple of them you know not going to each one of them subhu with your permission can we share this presentation absolutely. of yours with the podcast as a link absolutely please do please do thank and, you you know i and talking about a particular slide here where the macro statistics are shown the gfs global financial crisis period versus covid is is being shown let's take a couple just to illustrate so during the global financial crisis the rupee depreciated by almost 60% when the dollar has ap- had appreciated by about 5% okay right. in other words the rupee depreciated 12 times more compared to the average depreciation that is and this was basically delivered by a dispensation to which a lot of these folks that try to spread these narratives they were they are sympathetic okay i lot keep repeating it but global financial crisis was managed by that dispensation covid and ukraine now is managed by by the current government in contrast take a look at basically the currency while and i mentioned it already about 8 and 1/2 9% is the appreciation of the dollar while rupee has basically depreciated by about 4% so clearly look at that difference number 1 right. number 2 take it look at inflation around the global financial crisis for 1 and 1/2 years every month again i'm i'm saying this with emphasis for 1 and 1/2 years every month the inflation was in double digit right. in contrast okay in contrast now we have basically had 7% inflation yes which is a little higher but in an environment where us is having 7 and a half what percent inflation in a country where typically their inflation has been 1 and a half 2% and i've shown this as well that compared to historical average our inflation is about 4% greater if you take the average from 1960 to 2020 our inflation now is 4% higher while the you, you know advanced economies inflation is 400% higher that is basically what the si- similarly last statistic which i will basically show take fdi and fpi foreign portfolio investment in 2021 in, in into india 80 billion dollars came in while during the global financial crisis only 8 billion dollars came in foreign portfolio investment actually went out during the gfc period while about 10 billion dollars came in in 2021 and after a few months of of fpi investment the money actually going out now it is coming back again so i think it is hath kangan ko rc kya right so you just basically take a look at the data i would request all the listeners to just take a look at the data that is as i said the power of the truth i do not have to do as much job in convincing anybody when you have to sort of perpetuate lies you have to make a lot of effort i do not have to make effort i just have to put out the data and let the viewers interpret it for themselves who is speaking the truth and who is not subhu so, you are been a common man see 
आई गेस इट्स टाइम दैट सम इनिशिएटिव टू एडुकेट द हाउस होल्ड लाइक वॉट यू डिड फॉर योर इकोनॉमिक सर्वे फॉर द फर्स्ट टाइम इन दिस कंट्री जस्ट टू एक्सप्लेन भैया आपका पेट्रोल डीजल शुगर वेट और ये सब ऑल ऑफ दिस इज ए टेम्पररी ब्लिप एंड हेयर आर द रीजन यू सी द डिबेट इन द पार्लियामेंट लुक टू अट अनकलूसिव एंड आई एम नॉट शो हाउ मेनी पीपल एक्चुअली टू केट बट द फेक न्यूज फैक्ट्री हैज क्रिएटेड इट्स ओन इकोनॉमिक्स एंड बिहेवियर इज देयर अ काउंटर हाउ सच न्यूज कैन बी एम्प्लीफाइड ओवर सच यू नो फेक न्यूज इज द क्रिटिकल इश्यू वेयर पॉलिटिक्स एंड इलेक्शन कैन बी वन एंड गवर्नमेंट कैन चेंज दिस है जस्ट बिकॉज ऑफ द ग्लोबल क्राइसिस द गवर्नमेंट चेंज बोफोर्स which happened actually under Rajiv Gandhi Bofors and it basically led to the Rajiv Gandhi government falling was about 60 odd crores 60 crores this is 60 right. crores in 1988 even if you actually adjust for the for inflation increase it basically it may not be more than 500 crores 500 crores in today's today's money find make it 1000 crores also let's say one scandal that is worth 1000 crores let's say in today's money brought a government down versus several scandals the commonwealth scandal the coal scam the two scam now we're talking about the national herald case there are every one of them and we can start disputing whether it is basically a few lakh crores or is it basically several hundreds of or several tens of thousands of crores but even if we take the lowest estimate 40000 50000 crores where is 1000 crores and where is 50000 crores one scam worth worth 1000 crores versus each one of those scams worth 50 60000 crores you know what i'm talking about basically unprecedented corruption the kind of loot that has never ever happened in independent india it is that which basically made the you know it has made the common person indian citizen completely fed up saying that this this is basically not something that is happening in fact i will mention see when the congress government lost the first time which is because of emergency some of the excesses of emergency they learned their lesson right when indira gandhi came back to power basically learned the lesson and they had gone out of power only for 3 years but in and sanjay gandhi was blamed for that but right now if you see it's basically 8 years at so for 10 years it's not coming back but i think the indian population has learned now very well that we cannot entrust the country in the hands of people so are who are so incredibly corrupt that's the first lesson to take second which actually is if you look at the recent elections right whether it is whether it's up whether it's other states i think the common person is far far smarter than many of people who peddle these fake narratives uh, take him to be i think that you just you you mentioned that i am the sort of have been named the common person ca only because i myself come from a family that is that that is basically very similar to a common person and i have you know i can tell you i've heard my father i myself grown you know being so upset and having such angst about the level of corruption about the magnitude of corruption which basically ref- reflects what a common person thinks as well and some of these aspects of what basically pseudo secularism and things like that which is minority appeasement we've grown I mean, therefore i can identify very well with the common person's sentiment so let me mention that while there is a lot of attempt that is made to to push narratives all it requires is one person like one ray of light to win over all encom 
encompassing darkness that, that is something which actually can and if you see these forward i mean these presentations have been forwarded by so many people so clearly that is the power of truth and that is why i'll say it in some way being on the side of truth is far easier than trying to actually say a, a lie has to be repeated thousand times by thousand people why truth needs to be told only once i'm just want to pick up this thread of you brought up this whole issue of corruption the current ed raids is viewed as political vendetta what is your economist point of view should these regulations not be made stringent to curb such money and crony capitalism so i'll not get into the politics you know i'll no, i want an economist the, point of view only from the see, from an economist perspective if corruption is not punished then it just creates enormous incentives for corrupt behavior that's the way i look at it for instance if i and let, let me give you a very simple example if i go on the road and i cross traffic lights do not follow traffic rules and there is no consequence of that let's say i know you know everybody else knows that there is koi bhi traffic light break kar lo aapko kuch nahi bharna padega there is nothing there is no consequence there will be anarchy Correct. in society for society to act for to be civil there has to be consequences of bad action as simple as that i only look at it from that perspective that if there is somebody who's basically done bad things i think you know the same people when it is when it suits them they basically pay, pay uh, lots of homage to the courts right there is a court there is a court process that is basically all this is going uh, established process through which it is going through and it is part of actually ensuring that those that committed bad actions must be punished and that is the way i look at it as an economist i think we can't have anarchy where anybody basically during 2000 this period of 2009 to 2014 unprecedented corruption and that goes unpunished i think people are, are smart enough to figure out that all these claims of vendetta etc are just claims basically to suit their own their own narrative now another wrong narrative recently i saw a newspaper article that over the last 10 years over 1 lakh crores has been written off by the bank now instead of writing about the scam and putting it in a different perspective is there not a prescriptive approach to say how can we make our financial systems and institution far more robust and scam free rather than saying that oh ed will now start coming and raiding these banks or the bank officials how do so we counter such things which in the name of economic shadow cast some other conclusion and you've been in the policy side of things also in the government in the finance ministry you've been working with the banks so you worked with rbi this is something which hurts not just us as investors but when we face our investors abroad when we are raising capital there's a lot of view that oh india is a very weak financial system india is not economically stable india has got this india has got that oh we saw some riot oh there was gas leak uh, or there was no gas available during the covid pandemic and so many people died now i would love to get your prescriptive experience as a policy rather than this fake narrative on economy and numbers and and other things that are being peddled how do we control these sort of articles and this that are getting published okay there was a something wrong done and it has taken us 10 years to clean up uh, our financial system and we are far more robust so there are two aspects one you're asking about the financial system but you know another you're also asking about the portrayal of india you know, abroad correct. Those other, because those, these sorry, news two. spread in a very different perspective to investors abroad correct see let, let 
me let me answer the second part having lived in the united states for for, for a decade and having seen uh, some of this there is a lot of stereotyping of of india let's be very let's be very clear uh, for instance last year there, there was this and it was true that then that the new york governor had hidden covid death no, you know, no, no, th- th- this was basically in the state of new york right now the stereotype that works is suppose something like this had happened in one state in india what's the stereotype and therefore the extrapolation that would have been that oh all of india is basically not reporting covid deaths while the same instance actually in in the united states basically oh, it's a, it's an isolated in, in new york right the instance is the same so you know one state new york in the us and let's say one state in india but the interpretation and because of the stereotyping is very different so i think we have to actually be very very clear that that some of the stereotyping exists we should when we interact with these folks we should basically provide them data even on things like the deaths etc right see this is something when a few weeks back there was this nice interview that arnab goswami did with nambi narayanan and madhavan on the movie you know rocketry rocket where madhavan actually mentions very rightly he says that when the second wave was going on he was in the us and people were saying that all oh, the lot of people losing lives actually in the second wave the united states uh, lost as many lives but he, he made a very good point which i which resonated with me which is that in india we cremate so let's say there are t- t- 10 pyres funeral pyres that are that are burning or maybe 20 or 50 funeral pyres versus let's say when they are buried fire burning actually has a completely different image that it's created and remember we are a population of almost 1.5 billion people so something that that is of even a 0.0001% instance also looks very large right and these perceptions so i think we we have to actually make our effort at convincing out at conveying this to the international audience now whether they get out of their stereotypes or not despite our effort to provide them perspective is something that we cannot control but we certainly should provide them perspective on this and that's the main thing part of my effort actually is to to basically uh, do this i will highlight there was a piece i wrote in the times of india where i talked about some of these west narratives if you take for instance the take the farm bill you had greta thunberg tweeting on the indian farm law correct you are, if, uh, farmers were protesting in germany where farmers are protested in in france basically they blocked you know entire uh, highways with their tractors she doesn't protest she doesn't tweet about that but but she tweets about about india that is the kind of stereotyping that goes on which we have to actually acknowledge and point it out i think the important thing is that india today is actually different from the india that 10 years back we are basically going to point out what is true we're not going to take allegations like these lying down for instance i'll give you one more example a, a political leader had mentioned you know talk in one of the universities in UK that some foreign policy people were saying that India is behaving arrogantly or Indian Indian foreign policy actually I don't think there was, there was any arrogance there India in its foreign policy in response to the Ukraine crisis doing what is basically in its interest pointing out that there has been a Ukraine like situation that has been happening in Asia and that for Europe to think that Europe's problems are the world's problems but Asia's problems are not Europe's problems for a foreign minister to point that out which I was very happy about and that to basically for some foreign policy foreign bureaucrat actually to think arrogant i think basically conveys more their perspective than anything about us i think that is a signal of how india has come of age india will basically point out truths we will not take false allegations lying down we will very politely but assertively point out what is the truth so that's the key perspective to remember in terms of the and each one of us indians actually you know has to take that responsibility to do that that is part of us the service that 
directly to the due to the to the nation. Now with coming to the financial sector, that see, firstly, this one lakh crore that has been basically written off. As I said, it is because of the crony lending that was done till 2013, 2014. This is the way financial sector works. Banks will basically hide bad loans. They will evergreen them. And there were, it's also a, a fact, and I've written about it in the economic survey that the that the banking sector regulator, the Reserve Bank, actually continued to forbear for seven years, and that exacerbated the problems. That is why they, it took so long. It is only because we actually brought country brought the bankruptcy law IBC that these you know these have been actually we've been able to take out some of this money, right? But in right. the earlier situation, I don't think any of that, none of these even ED raids, none of this would have happened. And people who had basically swindled money like like nobody's business would have gone scot free, which they continued to do for, for a long while. So that is the point to remember. What is it that we have to do? I think again on this, I've written about it. If you read the chapter on golden jubilee of bank nationalization, our banks do not use enough technology, data analytics. If you ask me, I will say Indian banks still basically bank the sort of the banking model that they employ is 30 years behind what the best banks in the world do. So I think that is where the effort has to be put that even if you take our private sector banks too, even our private sector banks don't use as much technology data analytics on the corporate lending side. They actually do use on the retail lending, but not on the SME or corporate lending side. One more fact, for instance, I'll give you if you take, you know, and this is part of a, something that will come in the book that I'm writing. Uh, if you take India and, and South Korea, both of us got our independence on the same date, 15th of August, 1947. In 1960, South Korea's credit to GDP ratio, private credit to GDP ratio, which is basically about how, how well the banking sector has been doing, was lower than that of India, you know, mm-hmm. six decades back. But today, they're actually almost three and a half, four times ours. And that has contributed significantly to their increase in, in the credit to GDP ratio. Why is it? Because they have actually, their banks have employed technology. They've really used or the, the cutting edge of banking to be able to increase credit penetration, which we haven't done. I think it's a no-brainer, therefore, that our banks need to f- invest far more in reducing the kind of sort of credit rationing that happens. Even today, India's credit to GDP ratio is about 60%. This is the world's credit to GDP ratio was 60% in 1960. In other words, India's credit to GDP ratio today is what the world's or the and the OECD economies was six decades back. Can you imagine? This is basically what is the fundamental problem. I'll put it this way, like giving examples from cricket so that common people can relate with it. When we were in college, there was this Indian cricket team was led by Mohammad Azaruddin. Correct. Mohammad Azaruddin's team was, was phenomenal at home, right? On tailor-made pitches, they would win all every game. But as soon as they stepped out of the shores of the Indian subcontinent, they were basically just good for nothing. They were tigers at home, lambs abroad. Our, the Indian banking sector is basically like the Mohammad Azaruddin cricket team. It has nothing to note when seen in a global perspective, except for the financial inclusion, PMJDY, that has been done, that's a singular exception. But otherwise, when looked at in a global scale, the Indian banking sectors like Mohammad Azaruddin's cricket team, I think it's time that the way we cricketers, cricket fans demanded that we want a Saurav Ganguly cricket team or a MS Dhoni's team or a Virat Kohli's team, which performed as well abroad, I think similarly, we need to be asking of our banking sector as well. I would love to bring in an economics perspective. So now I'm seeing two sides to economic. One is evil economics. The <laughs> other one is truth economics. And somewhere <laughs> we people who face investors and who have to bring that the truth side of, of the economy and everything abroad are these some of, you know, today Virat Kohli's type of guys who have to face the investor invest, investor brand abroad and actually talk about truth and people like you are and your presentation 
agent actually happens to be a great piece of work in telling that this evil economics is playing somewhere else and it's been actioned out by some other anti-Indian or anti-whatever government or anti-investor forces. How do we work this? This is like we have to now start coaching Azuruddin to win matches abroad. Uh, well, so I actually would use terminology that is a little different. I would say dharmic economics versus okay. adharmic economics. Yeah, fir, you know, if you say it in fully in, in native language, dharmic arthashastra or adharmic arthashastra. So that's Very the clear. way I would characterize it. Because so in some sense, the English word that is used for this is ethics. I think ethics actually does not capture the, the so many nuances that the word dharma has. Dharma or dharma actually has far more nuances to it. So as would have become clear, see, economists are also human beings. And I, I can only speak for myself. I pride myself actually at at least endeavoring to be a good human being first and then being an economist. Whatever it is, it could be a cricketer, it could be a singer, it could be an investor, whatever it is. I think the first and foremost objective has to be a, being a good human being first and then being being whatever professional we are. So at the micro level, in order for dharmic arthashastra, dharmic economics, actually more ethical economics to actually you know, to, to sort of take root, it is indeed important that all of us at our own individual levels basically aspire to be good human beings. I think that's fundamental. It is none other than Lord Jesus basically said that if you have to sell your soul to become successful, you paid a very high price. Yeah. And that's basically how I view this. Now, it is equally important, therefore, to also educate people. Media has a very important role to play as well. The role that media has to play is media has to demand from those uh, to basically back whatever claim they're making using evidence. So irrespective of whatever reputation the person has, and you, you mentioned about Virat Kohli, ask Virat Kohli. He, you know, he everybody is not questioning where, where are your runs coming from, right? He can't re keep resting on his past laurels. Whatever he did was in the past. It is the same with economists as well. Whatever they did was basically whatever prize they won or whatever basically was in the past. Today, if you're actually making a claim, you back it with data. I think if just that simple thing is basically whether it is online media, whether it is print media or television media, if this simple thing is done, I think, you know, that will bring in a lot of discipline. For instance, if the claim is made that, oh, the, the problems in Sri Lanka today are because of the genocide that was done two decades back, the media should say, okay, do you have evidence to actually, can you show us a chart or a graph or something, which basically, you know, shows that it is not just your biased opinion, it is actually backed by evidence. I think if just that simple thing is done, right, people will basically be far more careful in what kind of opinion they peddle. The fact that the media does not basically ask this is what actually leads to leads to any, anything going. So let me let me sort of say it differently again. You know, as a, when we were playing cricket, cricket, our coaches used to tell us, play the ball, not play the bowler. In other words, said differently, even a Vasim Akram bowled bad delivery. Even a Jaspreet Broomra today bowled bad bowls bad delivery. It's not that just because he's Jaspreet Broomra that every delivery that he bowls actually is, is, is excellent. I think that mentality media also needs to have or for that matter, just because it's a Virat Kohli, whenever he steps onto the crease, he does not make centuries. He may have made centuries in the past, but the way you know, media asks Virat Kohli, saying, where is your next century coming from? Where is your where are the runs? Similar way with, with economists, with commentators, I think media has to start asking, you may have been X, Y, Z, whatever it is actually in the past, but today if you're actually claiming that this is what you're pushing a particular claim, show us a chart, show us an evidence, basically what, what makes you do that. Just this simple thing will ensure that far more truth prevails and a lot of peddling of these convenient narratives will actually 
you know the incentive for that will will get, will reduce a lot because then people's reputation will indeed be at stake now i think you know they're all getting a free pass i want to ask you a very personal question maybe twist it with a cricketing analogy that you just picked up 3 years you've done some brilliant work which obviously our country is never ever going to be able to thank you but was there a bad delivery like bumrah and in retrospective <laughs> do you think you would have done it differently as the chief economic advisor of india no firstly sir, I, i'm very humbled by by thoughts that you mentioned but let me be very honest i when i watched the movie rocket tree and i looked at what scientists like nambi narayanan did he sacrificed his life he put his life on line for the country right. and and so you know i am being absolutely honest <laughs> i mean i was glad to have been given the opportunity to actually contribute during a very difficult time for the entire world and for the country as well i am it gives me enormous personal satisfaction to have contributed at that point in time but it is nothing compared to the kind of sacrifices that individuals that like nambi narayanan or our defense forces people who basically go and put their lives actually on the, on the border they are the people that deserve our utmost respect for the kind of national service they do that's the first thing no, and you know i think major this... general of our economy if you don't give the right perspective the right data you know the wrong policies will come out i'm not belittling that i'm being not similarly yes people have a role to play but i'm just saying on on a personal level i i did not go and put my life on line actually for i tried my the very best with integrity with basically trying to pursue the truth i and i'm i have an i derive enormous satisfaction from that but the simple fact pure and simple fact is i did not go and put my life on line like the way anambi narayanan or many of the people who basically take for instance uri attacks or people who put their lives basically so there there is a big difference and i think that is something which all of us civilians and you know people who work on we must have that perspective uh, you know i at least for me i will i will talk about now as for delivery that yeah i would say the one thing that i would have really loved if it had happened was the farm that does it does leave me still it still leaves me pain i am being very honest it still leaves me very pain we had written about it in the in the 2020 economic survey about the essential commodities act about government intervention in the about a lot of the farm reforms and then it was it was implemented and if it had been implemented i think us the small and marginal farmers small farmers in particular would have benefited the most and here's what i will to me and, and as an economist right it's a no brainer if you look at both conceptually and empirically conceptually every economist worth his or her salt goes and teaches in the classroom that more competition whether it's more competition among buyers or more competition among sellers is always better it is that is unimpeachable principle that we teach and that economists take basically as second it's not just a principle if you look at in india since 1991 sector after sector whether it is airlines first whether it is telecom whether you look at mutual funds banks you look sector after sector whenever monopolies or monopsonies have been abolished and competition has been in, has been enabled it has always benefited the small people you know the, the most look at the, the way its startups have come up right they're right. challenging the, the 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 in the incumbents right and we wrote about this as well in the economic survey on wealth creation the kind of churn that is happening earlier if you took the bs bsc sensex the bombay dyings of the world actually would continue to be in the bsc sensex but today the bombay dyings are not even existent right so many right. companies are coming that's what so reform has actually really strengthened and created the strengthened the hands of the weak and has actually has benefited economically the the weaker weaker people so both conceptually and 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 in reality the data it was very very clear that the farm reform was basically something 
that would have genuinely benefited the small and marginal farmers and the kind of some narratives that were put out saying oh the process of actually of uh, the way in which the reform was pushed through was not right i think that was that is just a complete fig leaf because the intellectually honest thing for people to say and these are there were many people who had actually written about written in support of these when they were they had occupied august offices we had put out a table table 4 in the first chapter in the 2020-21 economic survey volume 1 listing out who all wrote in support of these when they occupied august offices if in if they had written when they actually had occupied these offices the intellectually honest thing for them to do was therefore to say look this is good reform uh, there is no doubt about it i think both the data and the economic principles clearly suggest that this this will benefit the small and marginal farmers and if they wanted to be constructive in their criticism then they should have said after having said, said very clearly that this is good reform they should have said there are some concerns about some you know within some sections so you know while we definitely support the reform we also encourage the government to go and talk with these people but let's not throw the baby with the bathwater the intellectually honest thing would say would have been let's make sure that we do not throw the baby with the bathwater i think i am being absolutely unambiguous in saying that that was the intellectually honest thing to do which unfortunately did not happen and that's something that leaves me that's the one delivery that i would have loved somehow if i could reboil it I, i mean not that to be honest with you actually i was there were a lot of other people but somehow if that reform had gone through it would have given so much inflation on food us. also would have come down yes absolutely absolutely because for instance right we don't have enough storage in the country why we don't have enough storage in the country because the essential commodities act treats all storage as hoarding um, and we've written about this if you had we had more storage things like onions you know prices oscillate so much because right. of wastage etc so it was i have absolutely no doubt and every economist worth his or her salt you know if actually he or she faces the mirror and is be and is absolutely honest will acknowledge that this was reform that one and all should have supported i want another personal question before i let you go your first innings has been a great one what's your second innings all about you said yeah. you're writing a book and obviously you're back into academics and i'm sure you're a role model to a whole host of future generation of economists which will turn up out out of our universities and colleges so what's your personal second innings now well firstly i i genuinely enjoy being in academia thinking thinking hard about about problems that the country faces coming about you know rigorously thinking about them working with data and coming up with policy that's what that that just you know gives me enormous enjoyment i when my son right now is basically in in the, in the 12th grade class 12 when he was younger if he wanted to watch television and i was let's say watching a cricket match he would say that appa why do you need to actually have fun outside of work you have fun at work anyway <laughs> <laughs> so and i have been fortunate to have developed this perspective to always live in the present moment be grateful for for what i have so i am absolutely enjoying what i what i do thinking about and writing writing these books there are a couple of books that are you know the, the drafts are finished they're actually going through the uh, through the publication process those books will and i've started work on a third book so uh, these are all the best uh, on the launch of your book and maybe yeah, that could books. be another topic of the podcast with us i would love to have conversation on some of these aspects in fact one of them is on something that we discussed this phenomenon of willful default and so uh, tentatively the book is titled scumsters ah. uh, <laughs> it's a it's it's a variant on scamsters uh, but scumsters is the title and so hopefully it'll come out in the i think the target is in the coming year the january or so so the draft is finished but as i as i said my, my this 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 innings as my previous innings i actually wouldn't i wouldn't call the ca role as the 
first innings actually it's uh, i have thoroughly enjoyed being an academic if i have to to the extent that if i have to live my life again i would choose to make the same oh, oh, choices no, no. that i did so innings is just two innings in a match there are many more matches to come <laughs> i would say that. i'm afraid we've run out of time but subhu it was real pleasure talking to the person the man behind changes in our economic thinking and some of the inspiration to what our future generation and the country will go through at a time when you stepped in and when you left office or limited office it has been a very inspirational journey and obviously we have to take some lessons from the messages that you have given about our evil economics or how how do we contain that in for those who want to just follow but don't corrupt the others who don't want to follow so i'm sure these these are very few nuggets of wisdom and key takeaways from our podcast which i really want to thank you for from my heart and the time that you spent openly and candidly talking to us on various aspects and issues not just uh, economics but behavioral side of economics and your personal side of economics as well and before i let you go i would love to wish you all the best on your uh, upcoming books comesters i'm sure uh, i'm going to have a read at it as well and talk to you as well on it and thank you for the time that you've devoted here and on behalf of our audience our, our sponsors and our team to having made this possible thank you so much look forward to my meeting pleasure. you soon my pleasure thank you